I will get to Donald Trump in a second. Quick correction on yesterday's program. I had identified Congressman Ted Lieu as a United States senator. He's a congressman. I had the congressman on my show. I have his chief of staff, Mark Savasco, on the show all the time. I misspoke. I accidentally identified him as a senator. He's a congressman and a great one. I have no idea why I said senator. Another correction. Six weeks ago, I said to keep an eye out for former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. I predicted that he would mop the floor in the debates and he would be right behind Trump. He would be in second place. Well, I was wrong. I thought Trump was going to show up for the debates that he couldn't resist. And Christie would stand out as the only candidate brave enough to take Trump on. I was wrong about Trump showing up to the debates. I still believe if Trump ever does show up and Christie is still in the race, nah, it's too late. I was wrong. I also said that Mike Pence, because of his strong pro-life record, would be a force to be reckoned with in Iowa because of the Republican Party's dependence in that state on the Christian right. I said, never underestimate the power of a former vice president. And I added that Iowa is unpredictable. But I've been looking at the polls, and I think Iowa will be Mike Pence's last hurrah. I don't see him winning Iowa anymore. I see him dropping out after Iowa. And another big correction on yesterday's program, I said Florida Congressman Matt Gates will never go up against Speaker McCarthy. I said he will never file a motion to vacate the chair. After McCarthy was able to push through a last-minute spending bill Saturday to keep the government funded for the next 45 days while the House and Senate figure out how to pass the 2024 budget. I opined on yesterday's show that Kevin McCarthy defied expectations, pulled a victory out of the fire, and that by passing the continuing resolution by working with the Democrats, he obviously made a secret deal with Democratic Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries that if Matt Gates is stupid enough to file a motion to vacate the chair, then Jeffries would provide the 20-some-odd Democratic votes that McCarthy would need to remain Speaker. I said this deal would be secret, but I implied that everyone in the Republican conference would understand that no matter what McCarthy goes through, Jeffries will make sure he stays speaker. So I predicted that Matt Gates was going to get the message to move on, just go back to passing the budget. I predicted Matt Gates would put his tail between his legs that he might complain, call McCarthy a traitor to the GOP, but that he wouldn't dare introduce a motion to vacate the chair because there is currently an ethics committee investigating Matt Gates' involvement in possibly violating the Mann Act. I said, nobody likes Matt Gates, and Republicans are looking for any reason to get rid of him. So he's going to have to take a back seat, keep his mouth shut, obey the power structure, and get in line. I also said, <laughs> this was yesterday, 
I also said this was a death blow to the Freedom Caucus, who have now been marginalized by bipartisanship, and that Speaker McCarthy is now much powerful this week than he was last week, and that nobody would dare challenge him. And boy, was I proud all day. All of Monday, I was right. And some people actually called to tell me that Matt Gates was backing down, that he wasn't going to be introducing the MTV, as they call it, the motion to vacate the chair. A couple people who I really respect called and asked me how I figured, <laughs> figured all this out. And I said, I guess I just have an instinct for these things. And while I was celebrating my Nostradamus-like ability to predict what's going to happen in Washington, D.C., I got an alert that Matt Gates, <laughs> at the end of the day, was rushing to the floor of the House to make an announcement. The gentleman will state the form of his resolution. Declaring the office of Speaker of the House of Representatives to be vacant. Resolved that the office of Speaker of the House of Representatives is hereby declared to be vacant. How about that? Turns out the most dishonest guy in D.C. keeps his word. Well, according to the rules put in place when McCarthy became Speaker, the House of Representatives now has two legislative days to take up this matter. And the clock is ticking on a spending bill for Ukraine, which I'll get to in a second. And the clock is ticking on getting a budget passed before the new 45-day continuing resolution expires. So the Republicans have a five-vote majority in the House. That means to win back the speakership, Kevin McCarthy needs 218 votes. He can afford to lose five members of his caucus and still stay speaker. Well, he's lost Gates. And the New York Times is reporting late Monday night that McCarthy has also lost a lot of the Republicans who stormed out of the caucus meeting early Saturday morning after McCarthy tried to sell them on that continuing resolution, which ended up passing and averting a shutdown. Tim Burchett of Tennessee, Eli Crane, and Andy Biggs of Arizona and Bob Good of Virginia are reportedly not going to support Kevin McCarthy as speaker, so that makes five. There are probably 15 other Republicans who would be open to supporting someone else for speaker, not Kevin McCarthy, because these are the Republicans who came to Washington to cut spending. And they don't like Kevin McCarthy's continuing resolution because it keeps spending for, for 45 days at the same level as, as it was under the speakership of Nancy Pelosi. And these far-right fiscal hawks believe there's no point in electing Republicans to the House of Representatives if they're going to spend like Democrats. They are also opposed to keeping the government open. And not just because they're opposed to government, which they are. They are adamantly against temporary spending bills. They believe if you can't get a budget passed by October 1st, 
There should be consequences and the government should shut down and Congress should pay a political price until they pass a budget. They believe these continuing resolutions remove the sense of urgency to perform Congress's most important role, passing spending bills. That is what these far right people believe. These 20 Republicans also don't want to fund the war in Ukraine because they're on the side of Putin, who they see as the great white Christian hope. And partly they believe that they're against war. That's what they convince themselves of. And they also want to pour billions more into border security. That's what they believe. And they don't trust Kevin McCarthy. And they don't need him. These 20 Republicans are in deep red st- uh, districts. And so they're, they're going to get reelected with or without Kevin McCarthy's money. So I was wrong. Why did Matt Gates file the motion to vacate the chair late Monday night? A lot of people think he's deranged. Seriously, a lot of people think Matt Gates is deranged and just wants to blow the whole place up. Now, the ethics investigation, if it took place, would allegedly reveal a series of adult women, not just the Man Act stuff, but there's also a series of adult women who might come forward claiming he sexually harassed them. In her new book, Cassidy Hutchinson, the star witness in the January 6 hearings, in her new book, she describes Matt Gates touching her inappropriately in a business setting. And like I said, there are the Man Act allegations. He supposedly, however, Matt Gates is supposedly contemplating a run for governor of Florida. So why did he introduce the motion to vacate? I think to come across as the guy who's taking on the Washington establishment, willing to pay a price for that, either through an ethics investigation that gets him kicked out or just being universally despised. And that will suit him just fine with Florida voters who reelected last year the universally despised Ron DeSantis for governor. There's an anti-majoritarian strain within Florida's GOP that appreciates a bully who's a fighter. That's how DeSantis bills himself, as a fighter. God needed a fighter. I'm a fighter. That's what DeSantis says. And Gates wants to run for governor, telling Florida voters, look what I did in Washington. I took on the entrenched business-as-usual career politicians, and now I'm coming home to fight for you. That, I'm guessing, is his political calculus. That's why he defied expectations and filed a motion to vacate the chair late Monday night. This is partly about getting elected governor of Florida. And then there's the ethics investigation. By challenging McCarthy, it's Trumpian. It defangs the ethics investigation Gates said on Monday that, yes, he's been talking to Trump, that he talked to Trump on Monday. And if there's one thing Republicans have learned from Trump is, if you're in trouble, go big. In other words, there are credible allegations against against Matt Gates involving girls, drugs. 
But if he goes after the king, Kevin McCarthy, then whatever Kevin McCarthy does to punish him, like opening up that ethics investigation, Gates, like Trump would, Gates can spin it by saying there's nothing there in that investigation. It's just politics. I'm innocent. McCarthy is punishing me for filing a motion to vacate the chair. I think that was part of his political calculus late Monday night. I think he filed the motion to vacate the chair so that it would make the ethics investigation look harmless. That's what I suspect Trump taught him. If you're in trouble with the law, if you're in trouble on ethics, go as big as you possibly can, like filing a motion to vacate the chair, and then that allows you to claim victimhood of a political witch hunt. I'm the victim of a political witch hunt. I think that's part of his demented political calculus. It's also important to keep in mind that Matt Gates learned from another Donald, his father, Don Gates, a former Republican politician, very wealthy Florida Republican politician from Florida who served at one time as president of the Senate in Florida and taught Matt, his son, the rough and tumble world of legislative politics. When I watch Matt Gates, I, my personal opinion is he's demented, but he's not an idiot. And then you realize, oh, yeah, he's he learned at the knee of his father. So interestingly enough, the same day that Matt Gates introduced a motion to vacate the chair and take on Kevin McCarthy, his daddy announced that he would be getting back into the game and would be running for state Senate in Northwest Florida. Now, the father and son served together in Florida state legislature about eight, 10 years ago. And then Matt made the move to Washington, D.C. And one can only suspect that Daddy Gates wants to get back into politics to help grease the wheels for Matt's run for governor. That's probably the motivation behind a lot of this. I don't think Matt plans to be in Washington too much longer. Also, Joe Biden, Joe Biden, Joe Biden, who I'm voting for, talks too much. And that's always been the rap against Joe Biden. This has nothing to do with his being old. And I'm going to show you some videos of Donald Trump a little later on where he's making the same exact mistakes that Joe Biden is, the same mistakes that I'm making. We all misspeak. But if you want to clip it and blow it out of proportion, you can attach any narrative you want to those mistakes. Earlier on yesterday's show, I, I called Ted Lieu a senator instead of a congressperson. If you were trying to destroy me, you could blow that out of proportion. The rap against Joe Biden, and this has been for 40 years, he talks too much, can't keep a secret. And Remember, he was the one who said that Obama was going to come out in favor of same-sex unions. Remember that? And uh, he jumped the gun on that. That's what Joe does. It has nothing to do with the aging process. And on Sunday, 
Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, Saturday. On Saturday, when he signed the bipartisan continuing resolution to keep our government running for another 45 days, he might have thrown Kevin McCarthy under the bus with the Freedom Caucus. I think Kevin McCarthy thought, I can get the budget passed, and then after I get that done, I can get Ukraine passed, but not right now. And don't tell anybody that I'm planning on passing a Ukraine supplemental. Separate from Ukraine funding, Biden was asked, could he still trust Kevin McCarthy? The question was not about Ukraine funding. During Saturday's signing ceremony, he was simply asked, could he still trust Kevin McCarthy? And with no prompting, Biden offered up this answer that didn't help Kevin McCarthy with House Republicans. Are you going to be able to trust Speaker McCarthy when the next deal comes around? We just made one about Ukraine, so we'll find out. Question was about the next deal, and he volunteered Ukraine. I think when he said that, he threw Kevin McCarthy under the bus. McCarthy had just gotten the continuing resolution passed, kept the government open. He was going to get to Ukraine when he felt the time was right. The Republicans suspected he was making a side deal with Biden. Biden should not have said while he was signing the continuing resolution that he made a deal with Kevin McCarthy on Ukraine. We just made a deal, one, on Ukraine. Ukraine. The ink on that bipartisan continuing resolution wasn't dry, and Biden said he made a backroom deal with McCarthy without consulting the Republicans to get Biden's $24 billion aid bill for Ukraine passed. So right there, the 20 Republicans in the House who are adamant about not funding Ukraine immediately figured McCarthy went behind their back, made some sort of deal, you know, we'll keep the government open. And then the Democrats, the deal was the Democrats will protect McCarthy if someone files a motion to vacate the chair and McCarthy will return the favor by doing what he was going to do anyway, and that is help fund Ukraine. McCarthy wants to fund Ukraine. So I think Biden made a mistake saying that. This was a backroom deal, and Biden threw McCarthy under the bus because Joe Biden talks too much. It has nothing to do with age. Uh, again, I think the deal they struck was let's get the 2024 budget passed and then work on Ukraine uh, as a supplemental. A supplemental is an appropriations bill passed after we've got a budget. It's additional, it's supplemental spending. Uh, so here we are, right? There's some kind of deal that McCarthy struck with Joe Biden and House Minority Leader Democrat Hakeem Jeffries. It, this is what people think that Hakeem Jeffries quietly signaled that he would provide all the votes necessary should a motion be filed to vacate the chair. And 
I think they were trying to downplay Ukraine. Get the budget passed first. You know, Chip Roy, the Texas Freedom Caucus firebrand, he said if there's a secret deal over Ukraine, the gloves are off with McCarthy, that he would support getting rid of them. So uh, this is uh, hard to predict now what happens next. Uh, what happens next? Well, since Matt Gates, you know, took the nuclear option, I, uh, McCarthy has two legislative days left before he's got to take this issue to the floor. They're going to have to vote on a speaker. Gates meant business. Now, there were two things he could have done. He could have, he could have done what he did, and that is go to the floor and make the motion to vacate the chair. Or he could have done something more gentlemanly, and that is made the motion to vacate the chair by filing it, but not doing it verbally. And if he did that... Uh, it would have been performative with no consequences. These are congressional rules. If he, if Matt Gates just handed the motion to the clerk instead of going before a microphone in the House and filing the motion, there are congressional rules that say, had he not verbalized it, then the clerk would have filed it and McCarthy would be able to table the motion. So Matt Gates would look good. He would have kept his promise. But then through procedural votes, McCarthy could table the motion and there'd be no 15 rounds for a new speaker. But Gates went all in. He went down to the floor of the House and verbally filed the motion. And according to House rules, if a member of Congress takes to the floor and announces that he is filing the motion, then the speaker has to act. He cannot table it. And now Kevin McCarthy has two legislative days to figure all this out. If McCarthy can't get 218 votes, then he has to vacate the chair. And then he's no longer speaker. So that would be the first vote. Uh, and... If he's no longer speaker, according to the rules, as I understand it, McCarthy must provide a top secret list of who he wants to succeed him as speaker should he lose the motion to vacate. I'm guessing his secret list goes something like this. And th this would be a temp an interim speaker who would be appointed. So the, it's not like if you vacate the chair, we know... what. We no longer have a speaker. We'll have a spe speaker pro tem, a temporary speaker. So Kevin McCarthy writes down a secret list of who he wants to succeed him. I'm guessing his secret list first would be Steve Scalise, who is second in command. And then behind him would be Elise Stefanik, who is third in command of the House Republicans. It's Scalise and then Elise. Scalise and then Elise. So Scalise, if McCarthy loses, Scalise becomes Speaker Pro Tem, assuming that's who 
Kevin McCarthy put on his secret list and hands to the clerk. And then the nightmare begins. We will still have a, a, a speaker. It'll be an interim speaker appointed by Kevin McCarthy. But the focus in the House of Representatives will be round after round of elections for a speaker. And they keep voting and voting and voting until somebody gets 218 votes. Uh, you know, except for the fact that the planet is broiling, there's a student debt crisis, an eviction crisis, childhood poverty just doubled, we need free health care and education. Despite all that, it's going to be an interesting <laughs> couple of weeks. Back in the day, the ancient Roman politicians distracted from their failures by providing circus. In America, our politicians are the circus. That's how they distract from their own failures. They, they are the circus. Well, on yesterday's show, I said, McCarthy is a lot savvier than I gave him credit for. But what do I know? And watching Donald Trump in that Manhattan courtroom today, I'll get to that in a second, I was reminded that Trump is still calling the shots in the Republican Party. It's hard for me to imagine that, but they're all terrified of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump works the phones. Uh, so what does McCarthy do? I suspect he's on the phone with Trump, getting him to whip Republican votes. That's how McCarthy became speaker in January. Trump worked the phones, whipped the votes for him. But what do you think? Is Donald Trump going to whip votes for Kevin McCarthy this time around? I don't think he does. I think Trump is mad at McCarthy for making deals with Joe Biden. I think Trump feels that you went bipartisan on me and uh, you, you're not my guy anymore. Uh, I was wrong about Matt Gates on yesterday's show. I said he wouldn't file the motion to vacate. So in keeping with my losing streak, let me make a prediction that I hope is wrong, right? Since I've been wrong on this, let me offer up this prediction, and you can relax because I've been completely wrong. So I'm going to be catastrophizing a little, but remember, I've been completely wrong. I think the next 45 days gets really dirty. I think Trump is furious that McCarthy worked with Biden and passed a bipartisan continuing resolution I think Trump is angry because it makes Biden look good. And it also signals to the American people there is stability in D.C. And Trump does not want stability in Washington, D.C., because Trump is a student of Nazi Germany. He is. He needs chaos. He needs a permanent government shutdown. 
He needs right now the American people to think there's gridlock in D.C. and that only he and he alone can unclog the system. This is his strongman mentality. The last thing Donald Trump wants right now is a functioning government. Now, if you read the polls, he owns the Republican Party. And McCarthy knows that. But McCarthy made a deal with Biden. And he made a deal with Biden on something huge, Ukraine. Trump is going to blow that up because he's beholden to Putin and Putin doesn't want $24 billion going to Ukraine. So keep in mind that I've been completely wrong here. Okay, here is my prediction. And I'm relaxed because I know I'm wrong. So it's so it's going to be a little scary but don't get upset because I'm always wrong. Well, not always. Okay, this continuing resolution that just got passed lasts 45 days. So we have, what, 42 days left? I think Trump is going to blow up the budget process. And we don't get a budget passed in the next 45 days. He does not want a budget passed. He does not want the legislative branch working with the executive branch and proving to the American people that they can live without Donald Trump. Uh, he doesn't want the budget passed and he gets a government shutdown because that's what he wanted. He told Kevin McCarthy, shut the government down, not just because he mistakenly believed that a government shutdown defunds all the prosecutions against him, those go on with or without the government. They're already funded. Civil lawsuits in the federal government might slow down. But he wants the government shut down to prove we need him. And the government, and this is what he wants. He wants the government to shut down around Thanksgiving and stay shut down through the Christmas recess straight into Iowa in January, because that's good for him. He can spin a government shutdown to his advantage. We will have an interim speaker. He'll, again, I'm catastrophizing here. He'll blow up the budget process and there won't be a speaker. Nobody will be able to get 218 votes. We'll have an interim speaker but nothing will be moving in Washington, D.C. It'll be chaos. And I know the way the Beltway spins, and somehow they'll blame Biden. So there'll be a horse race in 2024. Somehow this will be Biden's fault, and Trump will emerge with the wind at his back. That, I think, is what Trump is hoping for. Let's pray that doesn't happen. Let's pray I'm wrong. As usual, this is the mop-up for October 3rd, 2023. The Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded on Monday to Hungarian-American Catalin Carico and American Drew Weissman for their work in developing the mRNA vaccine for COVID. Their advances in mRNA research doesn't stop with just covid Soon, Russell Brand, Jimmy Dore, and Joe Rogan will be warning 
against vaccines for cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. That's what's next. Your phone is going to ring on Wednesday. FEMA is sending out a test signal to make sure their emergency system works. Yes, the government has our phone numbers. So get cracking, QAnon. I'm sure you can tie this in with adrenochrome and skinning babies. Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey and his wife were indicted last month on charges of being from New Jersey, or maybe it was taking bribes from the Egyptian government and three businessmen, you know, Jersey stuff. Anyway, the couple pled not guilty and their trial was set on Monday for May 6th. Donald Trump said just one trial? What a pussy. I'll get to Trump in a moment. Earlier this year, Young climate activists won a case in Montana courts claiming that a 2023 law that provides special status to the fossil fuel industry when it comes to drilling violates the Montana Constitution, which guarantees a clean and healthful environment. This was a monumental step forward for climate justice. So, of course, on Friday, Montana's Republican attorney general announced they would appeal the ruling. Thanks to the United States Supreme Court, the three-year moratorium on repaying student loans is over. And nearly 30 million Americans who borrow to go to college starting in October have to start paying it back. It is estimated that anywhere between six to nine billion dollars will be diverted from consumer spending and plowed into paying the government back loans because of this. Through an executive order, President Biden ordered $400 billion in student loans owed to the government to be forgiven. But three months ago, our Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional because that would end up making people's lives easier. And we can't allow that. It's the first week of October, and that means the Supreme Court is open for business, literally open for business. Clarence Thomas announced he now takes Apple Pay. There are some important cases to keep an eye on in the coming months. So I'll go over a couple of cases that I know we'll be talking about in the next couple of weeks. The fate of the Consumer Protection Financial Bureau will be decided by our Supreme Court. After the Great Recession was caused by banks making faulty loans, President Obama, with the help of Elizabeth Warren, created the Consumer Protection Financial Bureau, which Elizabeth Warren was supposed to head, but Republicans wouldn't allow that because she'd be good at it. I'm being serious about that. They didn't want anybody competent running the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It was set up, it's a new agency set up by Barack Obama to protect Americans from shady lenders. And the Republicans always hated this new agency because it protects Americans from shady lenders. It protects Americans from credit card companies and payday loan sharks who all lie. To keep it independent, to keep this agency independent and above partisan bickering, Barack Obama, when he created this agency, housed it inside the Federal Reserve, which funds the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. 
Now, a case is before the Supreme Court challenging the way our government funds the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. They're challenging the funding because it's housed within the Federal Reserve. They're insisting that Congress and only Congress has the power of the purse to fund government agencies. The Federal Reserve, according to these conservatives, does not have the power of the purse to fund the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Yeah, the, fi- the Federal Reserve can only fund banks and credit card companies that rip off Americans. It's not allowed to fund an agency that protects Americans from predatory lenders because the Federal Reserve is essentially a predatory lender. I don't think, uh, I don't know how much longer the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau can last. It's amazing. Nine people get to decide whether or not we have a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. How is that democracy? How is that a republic? As we've been reporting, there's been a raft of cases filed in several states attempting to get Donald Trump's name scrubbed from the 2024 ballot, citing Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which bans anyone from holding elective office if they ever swore an oath to uphold the Constitution and then participated in an insurrection. We should be seeing those cases bundled together and before the Supreme Court. We should see them before the Supreme Court, I think, sometime before or after the Christmas recess, since many of the state ballots have to be finalized by the end of January. They're trying to scrub Trump's name from primary ballots, not just the general election. So they need a Supreme Court ruling sometime in January of next year. On Monday, the court refused to hear a case filed by an obscure Republican presidential candidate. His name is John Castro. He cited the 14th Amendment and petitioned the Supreme Court to remove Trump's name from the Republican primary ballots. And the court said, we're not interested in hearing this case. But it should have no bearing on the other 14th Amendment cases that are winding their way through the courts. The courts, the Supreme Court, in its new term, will also decide if it's constitutional for there to be laws on the books that make it illegal for anyone to own a gun if they are subject to a domestic violence restraining order. You know, like the red flag laws that keep guns out of the hands of the violent and mentally ill. Well, now the court is going to decide if a guy who abuses his wife or girlfriend, whether or not he has a constitutional right to own a gun. Now, if you're watching overseas, no, I am not making this up. We have passed laws that keep guns out of the hands of domestic abusers, but the Supreme Court has to decide whether or not that's a good idea. Nine people in black robes who have jobs for life get to decide whether or not a domestic abuser has a constitutional right to buy a gun. What a country. In Loper Bright versus Raimondo, the court will decide on what is called Chevron deference. 
I don't know if it's anything like Vos deference. Look up Vos deference. This is Chevron deference. Your eyes are going to glaze over. But we're going to learn what Chevron deference is in the next couple of months, I promise you. And if you behave, I'll show you what a Vos deference is. (laughs) But I can't show you pictures of Vos deference. Chevron deference. Obviously, I'll have more on this in the coming weeks. But as I understand it, Chevron deference is a 40-year rule in which the courts defer to federal agencies in Washington, D.C. when those agencies enact regulations that some believe are beyond their purview. In other words, Congress creates an agency like the Environmental Protection Agency, and the agencies regulate. They regulate coal companies, right? And often the people getting regulated, like the coal companies, feel an agency like the EPA has overstepped its bounds, and they end up taking the agency to court. But for nearly 40 years, the Supreme Court has followed what is called Chevron deference, where they tilt in favor of the regulatory agency and refuse to hear these challenges to their regulations if the court feels the agency has been regulating within the spirit of the law that created the agency. Now, if the court rules against the Chevron deference, many on the left fear this will completely dismantle the power of the so-called administrative state and make it next to impossible for agencies like the EPA, to regulate polluters. This is a bill, and we'll be talking about this because this is really important. This, this would be the Supreme Court basically destroying the administrative state, the ability of agencies to regulate uh, freely. And you have to understand that is the intent of the Federalist Society, which has given us three of Donald Trump's Supreme Court justices, as well as Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas. I mean, they want to sink their teeth into a case that will destroy regulatory agencies. I don't know if I explained that clearly. It's a little complicated. I don't completely understand it. But we'll be talking about Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo because uh, it's, it's important. It's really part of Project 2025 from the Heritage Foundation. And another case the court will rule on this term is the right of social media platforms to ban users whose politics the social media platforms don't approve of. This is a case brought by conservatives who are complaining that platforms that prohibit hate, hate speech are violating their politics because their politics is hate speech, right? If, if, if my show were a social media platform, I would say you are not allowed to uh, speak out against LGBTQ rights, and I will ban you from my social media platform. It's hate speech. And... 
conservatives are taking that to the Supreme Court saying, it's not hate speech, it's my politics. This is, uh, anyway, another bill, another bill, another case. This is very interesting, this case. Is a government official allowed to ban someone from their social media account? Or does that violate the Constitution's guarantee that citizens can petition the government with their grievances? And we're talking about personal social media accounts. Throughout the country, several local government officials have begun to ban citizens from posting to their private social media accounts. They've banned them from following them because they feel the users who they're banning are threatening and abusive. But now this has made its way to the Supreme Court, which will decide whether or not government officials are allowed to ban anyone from their private social media accounts, not their government social media accounts, their private social media accounts. John Eastman is one of the 19 co-defendants. Uh, oh, did I, did we look at that? Hang on, did I? Media accounts, media accounts. Yeah, okay, good, all right. You still here? Uh, people still listening? John Eastman is one of the 19 co-defendants in that RICO election interference trial down in Georgia. Eastman is a lawyer, and he was best friends, and still is, with Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny, because they met while John Eastman was serving as a law clerk for Clarence Thomas when Eastman was a young lawyer. Even though John Eastman looks like he's older than Clarence Thomas, John Eastman is 62 years old. Let that sink in. If you remember, the now defunct January 6th committee subpoenaed John Eastman's emails in which he outlines plans for Mike Pence not to certify the election for Joe Biden on January 6th. His other emails contain plans for mounting the phony elector scheme. Eastman refused to turn his emails over to the committee. And even though the committee has closed shop and issued their report and made their references to the justice, referrals to the Justice Department, Eastman stuck with it and the issue made its way to the Supreme Court. Now, a lower court ruled that Eastman had to turn his emails over to the January 6th committee. And like I said, Eastman wouldn't let this go. He appealed to the Supreme Court, which rejected his appeal on Monday. A little obsessive, John Eastman, right? He wanted to make a point. He wanted to take his case to the Supreme Court. Clarence Thomas noticeably recused himself from this case, demonstrating a momentary lapse of misjudgment. Thomas is the only Supreme Court justice who voted in favor of Donald Trump's request to prohibit the January 6th committee from getting their hands on White House emails and texts involving the lead up to January 6th. The January 6th committee wanted everybody's texts and everybody's emails if it had anything to do with January 6th. It went before the Supreme Court 
And every Supreme Court justice said the Trump White House had to turn over every pertinent email and text involving January January 6th. Every single Supreme Court justice said executive privilege does not protect these emails and texts. Every Supreme Court justice except one. Ginny Thomas's husband, Clarence. He said, no, no, these emails and texts were protected by executive privilege. Why? Because his demented wife, Ginny, was busy texting Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, with, uh, with ideas on how to steal the election. Ginny Thomas was very much involved and these Texts and emails reveal this, that she was communicating with all the major players in that RICO trial down in Fulton County, Georgia. You think that might be the reason Clarence Thomas was the only Supreme Court justice who said, no, the White House doesn't have to turn over these texts and emails. Texts from Ginny Thomas to Mark Meadows in December after the election was basically over. Fight, fight. This is a battle between good and evil. She was uh, defending Sidney Powell. When people said Sidney Powell was crazy, Ginny Thomas, of all people, was like a character witness in the White House saying, no, don't fire Sidney Powell. Clarence Thomas was an unwitting stooge in the lead up to January 6th, okay? It's important to remember that his wife, Ginny, helped organize the January 6th Stop the Steal rally where Donald Trump and Eastman and Rudy Giuliani got in front of thousands of armed imbeciles and told them essentially to storm the Capitol. She was there and she was texting and this was her her fight. She wanted Mike Pence not to certify. Now, she didn't storm the Capitol. She went home. But uh, she was offering up ideas. According to the January 6th committee, she was offering up ideas uh, on the phony elector scheme. I mean, she was good friends with John Eastman. So Clarence Thomas was an unwitting stooge. Okay. This is from a year ago. I found this. It's from Politico, and it's really interesting. Uh, Now, keep in mind, we have nine Supreme Court justices. Each justice is assigned to a certain part of the country. They divide America up into nine parts when it comes to emergency rulings, like a stay of execution, right? If somebody is getting executed and they need to get get it to the Supreme Court. They divide the country up into nine separate areas. And Clarence Thomas, interestingly enough, covers Georgia. He's been assigned that part of the country. If there are any emergency rulings, uh, they get you can get a temporary stay from the Supreme Court, from one Supreme Court justice for an emergency. So if you need an emergency ruling, In Georgia, you go to Clarence Thomas, and that made him an unwitting stooge in the 
plot to steal the 2020 presidential election. I'm going to read you, if you don't mind, from Politico. This is from a year ago. It's really interesting. Thomas is the justice assigned to handle emergency matters arising out of Georgia and would have been the one to receive any urgent appeal of Trump's lawsuit to the Supreme Court, a fact that seemed to be part of the Trump legal team's calculus. Okay, so got to remember John Eastman was coming up with ways to postpone the certification, right? And best friends with Ginny Thomas, okay? Rulings from so-called circuit justices are typically stopgap measures aimed at preserving the status quo until the full Supreme Court weighs in. But the Trump lawyers hoped a favorable order from Clarence Thomas would embolden state GOP-controlled legislatures, Congress, or then Vice President Mike Pence to block final certification of Joe Biden's victory. Okay? This is the plan. The plan was create so much confusion, get an emergency ruling from Clarence Thomas and the Supreme Court so that there's some there's doubt about the election results. Mike Pence doesn't certify because it's now in the courts. There's rioting in the streets and protesting. This was part of the plan. And the Supreme Court then convenes and says it's up to Congress to decide who's president. And I've been over this. If Congress had to decide who was president because of the way the states are weighted, Trump had the advantage. Trump would have been elected president. So that was the plan. Here is a uh, an email that Kenneth Cheesebro, he's one of the indicted co-conspirators down in Fulton County. He's also believed to be an unindicted co-conspirator in the federal case in Washington, D.C., trying Donald Trump for election interference. This is an email that Kenneth Cheesebro and his lawyers try to suppress from evidence in his trial down in Fulton County, which starts in two weeks. But this was an email that he wrote, and this is pretty amazing. We want to frame things so that Thomas, that would be Clarence Thomas, could be the one to issue some sort of stay or other circuit justice opinion saying Georgia is in legitimate doubt. Thomas would be our only chance to get a favorable judicial opinion by January 6, which might hold up the Georgia count in Congress. That's, he wrote that in December 31st, 2020. Cheesebro also in his memos talked about whipping up the streets, getting the streets whipped up before January 6 so that the Supreme Court feels the need to intervene. This is the memo that he wants suppressed. You could call it the smoking gun. If we can just get this case pending before the Supreme Court by January 5th, ideally with something positive written by a judge or justice, hopefully Clarence Thomas, I think it's our best shot at holding up the count of a state in Congress. This is pure evil. December 31st, 2020. 
It's all about creating confusion. John Eastman writes back, I think I agree with this, December 31st, 2020. That is the email, one of the emails that John Eastman took all the way to the Supreme Court to try to avoid handing it over to the January 6th committee, which they got it anyway. And John Eastman, you can be sure, is going to file a motion to suppress those memos, his memos, from the Fulton County RICO trial. And we know that Kenneth Cheesebro has already filed motions to keep his emails out of the trial, the same way Donald Trump has filed a motion to keep the recording of his perfect phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. Uh, Trump is saying just that cannot be, Trump has told his lawyers, according to Rolling Stone magazine, you cannot play that tape before a jury figure out a way to suppress it. So you would, one would think these cases are slam dunks. But as I always say, I remember watching the Rodney King video. And you thought, well, these guys are going to prison. And no, they were not. That was unbelievable. When Rudy Giuliani was mayor, his police commissioner was Bernard Carrick. And this was one of the most racist police forces in the country at the time. The uh, two of them have been partners in crime, Bernard Carrick and Rudy Gi uh, Giuliani, literally partners in crime. So far, uh, only Bernard Carrick is the one who's gone to prison, but there's still time. Yeah, uh, but yes, Bernard Carrick, the police commissioner of New York City, went to prison. They got him on taxes the same way they got Al Capone. But Bernard Carrick was using, I don't want to get into it. Okay, he was using, allegedly, an apartment near Ground Zero for extramarital affairs. And the apartment was a gift to the guys, the, the first responders cleaning up Ground Zero to come in and shower, rest, and get back and go through the rubble. But they couldn't get in because Bernard Carrick, the police commissioner, was using that apartment to carry on uh, a uh, extramarital affair. He ended up going to prison. Okay? And Donald Trump pardoned Bernard Carrick at the end of his term. Well... Carrick traveled around the country with Rudy in the lead up to January 6th, trying to find evidence of voter fraud. And I'm guessing since he is a New York City police commissioner, trying to plant evidence of voter fraud. That's what I would just guess since he's a New York City police commissioner. They uh, both needed the money. Bernard Carrick needed the money. Rudy Giuliani needed the money. And Carrick soon realized we weren't getting any money. They, they weren't getting paid. And he, this year, became something like a cooperating witness with Jack Smith, the special counsel in Washington, D.C. Uh, he hasn't flipped, 
because I don't think he he's not an unindicted co-conspirator in the federal case against Trump yet. But it was Bernard Carrick who went to special counsel Jack Smith and said, I haven't been paid. Rudy hasn't been paid. This is wire fraud. He's been raised. Trump has been raising hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars through his Save America PAC, telling donors all the money is going to go towards finding election fraud. Well, it's not finding its way to me and Rudy. We're getting screwed here. And uh, so if there's an election, if there's a wire fraud case that comes out of Jack Smith's office, I think former New York City Police Commissioner Bernard Carrick will have kind of helped, uh, sparked that. So uh, Carrick wants to be a cooperating witness, perhaps down in Georgia in the RICO trial. At least he wants immunity. Now, Carrick was listed as an unindicted co-conspirator in Georgia. I think there was something like 30 unindicted co-conspirators. There, there are 19 people who were indicted, and then they, they mention 30 unindicted co-conspirators, and it is believed that Bernard Carrick was one. And he's been asked to testify in the RICO trial down in Georgia, which starts in, what, two, three weeks? But lawyers for Bernard Carrick say they don't want him to testify unless he's given immunity. Carrick's lawyers say, if you force him to testify, he will plead the fifth. But give him immunity? Well, who would he give up? Who would he give up? Would he give up Rudy? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think he'd give up Rudy. Okay, Trump, Donald Trump, he's angry. Did you see him Monday? He is angry and disgusting. And he showed once again how, gro how gross a bully he is. Uh, he was a mafia boss, but even mafia bosses don't behave the way he did in that Manhattan court, courtroom. He went down to his civil lawsuit. He's got a civil lawsuit going where he's being accused of fraud. And he tried to stink eye and strong arm the judge as well as the attorney general. I mean, it was old school mafia stuff. Like, I'm watching you. It was some of the most thuggish behavior uh, I've ever seen. And I, and I never realized how much I truly hate this man. Uh, I think today it went to a new level of hate. He showed up with his son, Eric, and the, he turned the first day of his trial into a political rally. Trump, as you know, was found guilty last week by this judge in a case where the state attorney general accuses him of overinflating the value of his properties by as much as 2,500 percent. That was in order to secure loans. The judge ordered Trump last week to turn his 400-some-odd shell corporations into receivership. He has something like another week, according to the judge, before all his shell corporations have to be turned over 
and pending appeal, his real estate holdings will all have to be liquidated. And this is the angriest Trump has ever been. He is rattled and frightened, and so he lashes out. Here he is complaining, as usual. As you know, we're not entitled to a jury, which is pretty unusual in the United States of America. So uh, you think it's very unfair that I don't have a jury, but... Yeah, he thinks it's very unfair that he doesn't have a jury. Why doesn't he have a jury? Because your lawyer didn't check the box saying you wanted a jury trial. You got a bench trial because of your lawyer. It's what your lawyer asked for. But of course, he just lies. And here he is on the attack. It's a scam. It's a sham. It's a scam, it's a sham, it's a robbery, it's a schmobbery. Then he gave a heart-lifting message to all of America and our children, don't lose faith in this great country of ours. They're all corrupt people. Frankly, our country is corrupt. Our country is corrupt. Yeah, the whole country is corrupt. Then he talked about Mar-a-Lago, which he insists is worth anywhere between one to $2 billion, even though, and I showed you this, I guess it was last week, the tax appraiser in Palm Beach and Donald Trump signed the agreement, Mar-a-Lago's worth under $30 million. There are so many restrictions on that property that you can't subdivide it, you can't tear it down. It's, it's, it has limited potential. So it's worth, if the tax assessor says it's $30 million, maybe it's worth $50 million, right? And the, and, but he's taken out loans using Mar-a-Lago as collateral, insisting it's worth half a billion dollars. And now he's claiming it's worth a billion dollars. Here he is lying about the value of Mar-a-Lago. They have one property that's worth... Anywhere from 50 to 100 times what this judge put down as a value. Put down a value, $18 million. And the property's probably worth, could be anywhere from 50 to 100 times more than that. And a lot of those numbers could even be low. And the judge, by the way, is paying attention to what Trump said and said, stop saying I said Mar-a-Lago was worth $18 million. That's what you said. That's what the tax assessor said. Okay, now this is where it gets. I mean, who shows up at, at a trial like this and holds a campaign rally to tell America that he's that he's wealthy? I mean, he's in he's in a state of panic. Trump went bankrupt six times, and during one of his bankruptcies, they were going to take everything. They were going to take everything. And then one of the bankers, and this is why he ended up hosting the, one of the reasons he ended up hosting The Apprentice. One of the bankers said, you know, we can liquidate all his property, but he's worth more alive than dead because there's a name, there's a brand. So they said, look, if you polish your brand, we'll keep you in business. This is what the bank said. We'll keep you in business. We'll let, you know, we'll, we'll, we won't make you pay back everything right now. We'll keep you afloat, but you got to stay famous. 
and you got to burnish your brand. And he went out and kind of reinvented himself. He got more famous because they told him the Trump name was worth something. They taught him, it was the banks that taught him about branding. You can put your name on buildings, buildings you have nothing to do with, that you didn't build, that you don't own, and you can collect a fee. Just call it the Trump Hotel in wherever, and you, you'll get a, a franchise fee for your name because a lot of idiots associate Trump with quality. They do, right? Uh, but that was 30 years ago. That was 30 years ago. Uh, the Trump brand is a lot different, a lot different. But here's Trump insisting he's a brand name. And that's where his real wealth is, in his name. I have a name, and that's worth money. And you can't, you can't quantify how much my name is worth. And this is why this trial is so upsetting to him, because it's destroying his brand. Wealth. I'm a wealthy man. That's his brand. Here he is defending his brand. I didn't even put in my best asset, which is the brand, in terms of value. Coca-Cola, take a look at their value. They have a value. The value of their brand is more than everything else put together. My brand is extremely valuable. I didn't even use it in my financial statement. If I wanted to build up a financial statement, I would have built it up by using brand in addition to everything else. He knows nothing about books, you know, filling out books. There's, you cannot put your brand worth $3 billion. Uh, yeah, you're a brand name, Trump, the same way AIDS diet candy is still a brand name. There are still people from the 80s who remember AIDS diet candy. That's the Trump brand, AIDS diet candy. Uh, you're not Coke. You're not Coke. You're new Coke. You're Mr. Pibb, you're Mountain Dew, emphasis on Dew. Then, after Trump insisted that he didn't inflate his books, this is the best part. This is the best part. He said, I didn't inflate the books. They're completely honest. And then after he said, I didn't inflate the books, he says, of course I did. He said, nobody's supposed to believe anything in these books. And he talked about the worthless clause. He's basically saying, I never lied but of course I lied and everyone knew I was lying. Another thing, we have a clause in the contract which tells essentially buyer beware. The contract is very, very, if you take a look and you speak to the banks and you will, I hope you speak to the banks because the banks got paid in full. I hope you speak to the banks. But we have a clause in the contract. It's like a buyer beware clause. It says when you Take a look at the financial statement. Don't believe anything you read. This is up front. Don't believe anything you read. Some people go to worthless clause because it makes the statement and anything you read in the statement worthless. It says go out and do your own research. Go out and do your own due diligence. You have to study the statement carefully. Do not believe anything. In fact, it's so strong that people read it and they don't even <coughs> accept it. 
They don't even want it. They don't even use it. It's called a disclaimer clause. It's very common. If you put it in, if you don't have time to do statements, or even if you do have time, people like to have it. This is what's called a full disclaimer. We disclaim the financial statements. But even with a full disclaimer, which immediately takes you out of any fraud situation and any litigation. Mm-hmm. He said, <laughs> I didn't lie on my books. Totally honest. Mar-a-Lago is worth a billion dollars. But there's a disclaimer on my books that says, don't believe a word I'm saying because I'm a liar. Incredible. Isn't that incredible? And then uh, it's important to remember that last week he said uh, General Mark Milley, the outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, should be shot. On Monday, he had a message for his minions about the New York State Attorney General, Letitia James. And you're to go after this attorney general. Go after this attorney general. Of course, this was a big campaign event. He turned basically our courtrooms into a campaign event. He sent out an email blast to all his imbeciles asking them for donations to his super PAC. The email basically began with, I'm writing to you from a Manhattan courtroom. He's raising money off this. Well, the judge uh, already found him guilty. Why are they still having a trial? This is the judge. Why are they still having a trial? Because six counts remain of insurance fraud, conspiracy, and falsifying documents. No, no, that's the disclaimer clause. We had a disclaimer clause that we were going to be falsifying documents. We said, don't believe a word in this. So we didn't falsify. We were very honest. Meanwhile, he's out on the campaign trail, right? He's out. He was in Ottumwa, Iowa. And as you know, I misspoke. I said that Congressman Ted Lieu was a senator. People misspeak. Joe Biden misspoke. We all misspeak. Uh, here is Donald Trump, tired, misspeaking. And then I build a 40-foot wall, a 50-foot wall, or a 30-foot wall on top. They say that was a renovation. That doesn't count. These people, I'll tell you what they have. I'll tell you, they have a great line of bullshit. That's one thing I can tell That was a renovation. Like sloppy Chris Christie. Oh, he only built 56 miles of wall because there was some wood laying on the ground. So they call that a renovation. We built almost 500 miles of wall. Even the Obama administration says it in their stats. Right? Did you catch that? He misspoke. Let's, let's blow that out of proportion. Even the Obama administration says it in their stats. No, it was the Biden administration, right? But we can turn that into a, a super PAC ad and say he's misspeaking. He's old. He's lost his step. Please continue. By the way, remember Christmas, by the way, we brought back Christmas. We brought back Merry Christmas. Nobody fights it anymore. Nobody fights it. Speaking of Christmas. Remember that? I said, one of the first things I said in 2015, actually, when I was campaigning, I said, we will bring back Merry Christmas. 
because these woke department stores, they didn't want to use the word Christmas. And uh, they use the word Christmas now. We brought that back. We did a lot of things. Yeah, that's the record that you can run on. Yeah. We did a lot of things. Yeah, you did a lot of things. Uh, you killed a million people with COVID, lost more jobs than any president since Herbert Hoover, and ran up nearly one-third of the United States debt while staging the first insurrection in American history. We did a lot of things. Yeah, you did a lot of things to us. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. Thank you for listening. This is a podcast, so you can download this wherever podcasts are heard. Please share this with your friends. That's the best way to help spread the word. Please like the show. Please subscribe to it. Uh, please leave comments. Uh, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your comments. And if I made any mistakes, please let me know. Please correct my mistakes. Thank you to the people who are moderating the conversation in our live chat room right now, keeping it civil. Please subscribe to my newsletter by going to my website. Thank you all for putting up with me. And I will see you tomorrow, either at 12.05 a.m. Eastern or 12.30 a.m. Eastern. I don't know. I thought I'd be able to do it at 12.05, but you had Trump's trial and then Matt Gates blew everything up. Boy, I really got that right, didn't I? <laughs> I really got Matt Gates. I really got that right. All right. I'll see everybody tomorrow. Thank you so much. 